Turn to Matthew 27. We're actually going to be in Leviticus 23 for a few minutes too. So go ahead and turn there. How many of you like a good mystery? You know what I'm talking about? Like a mystery novel or a mystery movie? You know what I'm talking about? Melissa and I love mysteries, especially if they're movies. We like the, we like the whole um, twists and turns and oh, oh, you know what I mean? The whole mystery of the thing. Uh, Melissa and I used to do something in youth ministry called prom alternative. Prom alternative, yeah. <laughs> prom alternative was an alternative night of entertainment for high schoolers who um, didn't necessarily want to go to prom. And most of us know that prom has a way of pulling people into behaviors that are unbecoming, right? So we would always provide something alternative for kids that didn't want to go to prom. And we would usually take kids to Dallas, eat at some fancy restaurant, and then find the most cultured thing that we could do in the city that night. One year, we went to this murder mystery comedy thing in this really cool old theater. And... um, and it was live. It was right there in front of you. It was one of the funniest things that I've ever been to. Sean, did you go to that? I thought so. And Brittany, you're, didn't Brittany go to that? Tabitha, did you go that year? You didn't go that? We had a bunch of kids that year. Anyway, honestly, it was one of the coolest things I've ever been to. Um, partly because I love mysteries. I love live stuff. It was really cool. But also, just like in a book or in a movie, when you think about a mystery, you're instantly pulled into the challenge of solving the mystery. You guys know what I'm talking about? You, you have no choice. You're pulled in. You're watching. You're listening. I guess if you're reading a book, you're, you're reading and you're gathering all the clues and you're mentally filing those clues away. And every time you get a new clue, your brain starts working overtime trying to solve the mystery. You guys know what I'm talking about? And it's kind of exhausting, but at the very same time, uh, it's, it's kind of exciting. Well, tonight I thought that we could solve what has become somewhat of a Bible mystery. Would you guys be willing to do that? That's not a strange thing to do on Easter, is it? The good thing is, is tomorrow's Easter. (laughs) So we're okay. We're safe. So look at Matthew 27. Look at Matthew 27. And we'll start in verse 50. Uh, To set the scene, we know that Jesus is on the cross here. He had been unfairly tried and convicted. He was beaten very badly within inches of his life. Roman soldiers had nailed his hands and feet to a cross. And then they had lifted him up. They had pulled him up so that everybody could watch him suffer. And we know that he was put on the cross at around 9 o'clock in the morning. And at this point, it's around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So actually, let's start in verse 45. Verse 45. Uh, It says, verse 45, it says, Now from the sixth hour, which would have been noon, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. At about the ninth hour, which would have been three o'clock in the afternoon, it says that Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, This man is calling out for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran, and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine, and he put it on a reed and gave it up to Jesus to drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether or not Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit, or gave up his spirit. Right then, he he died. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, and the rocks were split. Verse 52 and verse 53. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. How many of you have ever read that verse? 52 and 53. Have you ever been like, huh? 
How many of you have ever been, yeah, you said zombies. How have they not made a movie about this one? You know what I mean? They could have really botched that one, right? How many of you have read this before? Okay, here's the mystery that I want to solve tonight. Why did dead people come up out of the grave and walk around the city? That's what we want to find out. That's what we're wanting to get to. That's the conclusion that we want to come to tonight. Why did that happen? Why did dead people come up out of their grave and walk around the city? Now, I think it's, to say, it's safe to say that this is something that God did. Can I get an amen? All right, most scholars would say the same thing. I mean, people came to life and started walking around the cities. We don't have to argue about whether or not God did that. He did do that. The question is, why did he do that? And I read one commentary that said that there was no real reason why God did that. It's just that when Jesus died, it released so much power that all these people just started raising from the dead. Now, I personally find a few holes in that theory. All right. First of all, those people came alive after Jesus was raised. Isn't that what it said? After his resurrection. But let's say it did happen right when Jesus died, that that's when all the zombies came out, okay? I promise I won't call them zombies again. We probably shouldn't do that, all right? (laughs) Thanks a lot, Sean. (laughs) But let's assume it did happen at that time. You're telling me the power of the cross only emitted enough power to raise a few people from the dead. Think about it. We're talking about the power of the cross. The power of the cross, if it was going to bust out, You have the power to raise everybody that ever lived from the dead. Right? We're talking about the power of the cross. We just sang about the power of the cross. At certain points in those songs, we raised our hands. So I'm assuming we think the power of the cross has lots of power. Amen? Are we on the same page here? So to me, that's a hole in the theory. Jesus is power. The power of the cross could have raised everybody, not just a few. Okay? But here's the third hole. And there's probably way more holes in that theory than just this. But the third hole in that theory is this. God never does something without having a reason for doing it. Um, This is the leading clue, okay, for tonight. This is the leading clue. You cannot solve this mystery without this clue. And that clue is God always comes through with the appropriate thing at the appropriate time. God always comes through with the appropriate thing At the appropriate time. Now look over at Leviticus 23 because I want to show you just how true that statement is. Leviticus 23, it says that the Lord spoke again to Moses. This is verses 1 and then verse 2. It says that the Lord spoke to Moses again saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, The Lord's appointed time which you shall proclaim as holy convocations. And we'll just stop right there. The Lord's appointed times, this is what God is saying to Moses to tell the people of Israel. The Lord's appointed times, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations. Now, some of your translations may may read um, uh, appointed festivals. It may say appointed feasts. It may say appointed times. It may even actually say right there, the feasts of the Lord. Um, But what that Hebrew word right there is moed, Moed. What that really means is an appointment. What that word in its core means is an appointment. So God was making an appointment with his people. And it goes on to say that, and I want you to proclaim these appointments as holy convocations. Convocation just means gather them all. No one left out. 
This was to be in a public assembly and there was no choice in the matter. You had to be there. You had to participate because it was holy. It was set apart. It was God's appointment that he was making with the people. But interestingly enough, okay, this word convocation also was used to mean a rehearsal. So think about that. A rehearsal. Think about what God's saying. Israel, (laughs) I want you to get your iPhones out. I obviously stands for Israel. Get your iPhones out, and I want you to mark down an appointment in your iPhone. Seven times a year, we are going to come together for a rehearsal. Are you guys following with me? Mark this on your calendar. Seven times a year, we are all going to come together. No one left out. No one misses the date. And we are going to have a rehearsal. But rehearse what? The rehearsal is a rehearsal of God's redemptive plan of salvation. He goes on to say, my appointed times are these. And then the first appointment that he actually spells out right here is the Sabbath. That's the first appointment, which is also the fourth commandment. Remember, once a week, make an appointment to take a break. Remember, this is one of the commandments. It was in the same sentence, the same lineup as don't steal, don't kill, don't covet. We'll preach that sermon another time. Okay, so after he reiterates the Sabbath, he goes on to make seven appointments throughout the year. Now, these appointments have become known as the seven feasts of the Lord. You also may hear it called the seven feasts of Israel, but the seven feasts of the Lord. And the people of Israel didn't realize this, but the seven feasts of Israel are a prophetic timeline of God's redemptive plan of salvation. In other words, each feast was a rehearsal for a certain thing that God planned to do at a certain time. Are you following me? Okay. This isn't a typical Easter message, but I want you to follow with me. So for the people of Israel, if you think about it, Passover was just a way for them to remember the blood of the lamb that was put over the uh, the doorpost. Remember, it caused the spirit of death to pass over them. And it was a way for them to celebrate their deliverance out of the ungodly Um, land of Egypt. For them, that's kind of all it was, a way of remembering and celebrating. They had no idea that 1,500 years later, probably a million, you know, Passover lambs that were sacrificed later, Jesus would come as their Messiah, the Lamb of God who would be led like a sheep (laughs) to the slaughter. And then he would defeat Satan and break the the oppressive... um, the oppressive stronghold of sin by his own blood, okay? They didn't know that. All they think, we're celebrating, remember, the day we came out of Egypt. They had no idea that 1,500 years, Jesus would be the Lamb of God. They had no idea that 1,500 years later, a guy named Jesus would be nailed to a cross at the exact, on the exact day, but at the exact time that they normally, traditionally, would be putting, or they would be killing the Passover Lamb. At the exact time that Jesus was put on the cross is when the Passover lamb was being slaughtered. There's no way they could have known that. There's no way they could have known that at the exact same time, or the exact same guy, six hours later, was taken off the cross, was cleaned up, and put in his grave at the very same time that they would have traditionally put the Passover lamb into the oven. You guys follow Isn't that crazy? There's no way they could have known that. But God always comes through 
with the appropriate thing at the appropriate time. Doesn't he? For the people of Israel, when it comes to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is the second feast, so you have Passover, you have Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which began the day after Passover. For them, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was like, like a, um, you remember when? You guys know what I'm talking about? You remember when we used to do that as kids? Or do you remember that time we... That's really all this feast was for them. Do you remember the time that we had to leave Egypt so fast that we didn't have time to put any leaven in the dough? We had to get out of Dodge. Remember that? We had to cook our bread out on these little grills out in the desert. Dude, that bread not having leaven in it really saved us. That's about all it was for them. Man, that's why we eat bread, unleavened bread, for seven days in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's about all it was for them. They had no idea that leaven, yeast, leaven, would eventually become the number one symbol in Scripture for sin. Right? You guys do know what I'm talking about there? We've probably preached that enough for you know what I'm talking about. They didn't know that one day Jesus would come and live a life completely free from sin. No leaven. Not one ounce of guilt, and yet he would be judged unfairly and sentenced to death. And then in the process of that death would leave his body pierced. It would leave his body bruised. It would leave stripes all over his body, just like the way the unleavened bread was cooked out in the desert upon that little grill. It would have produced stripes on that bread. It would have produced these little brown spots that looked like bruises. And so that they could cook the bread evenly because it was on a grill and not in an oven. They would poke holes in the bread. That's why it's flat and yet still cooked. Wow. There's no way they could have foreseen that, right? You guys with me? But I think the best kept clue as it relates to the Feast of Unleavened Bread as a rehearsal was this. Leaven, like I said, is a picture of sin because of the way that it rapidly um, permeates the dough. It just takes over contaminating it, souring it, if you will, um, fermenting. It really, the best way to say it is corrupting the dough. You put leaven in it, what it does is it corrupts it. Because without the leaven, it's just going to stay flat. But when you put that leaven in it, all of a sudden it boasts up. It bolsters up way bigger than what it should be. Yet it still weighs the same. It is the same, but yet it's this blown up piece of bread. I just thought about this. Isn't that exactly what pride, the mother sin, does? Boasts us up. It makes us way bigger. We're the same size, same shape, but something is way bigger. You guys hear me? I just thought about that. Somebody write that down for me. That was good. So souring is considered the first stage of decay. Okay? Think about that. Souring, that leaven produces that contamination, that souring, and that's the first step First stage of decay. We all know what decay is. It means to become decomposed. It really it means to rot. Isn't that what it means? There's a scripture in Psalm chapter 16, verse 10, uh, 10 that's it's a messianic prophecy. Most of us have heard it. It says, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Sheol is another word for grave. You will not abandon my soul to the grave, nor will you allow your holy one, again talking about the Messiah, to undergo decay or to see decay you with me notice that it doesn't say the messiah wouldn't be put in the grave that's not what it said he will be put in the grave 
It says that Messiah would never experience the process of rotting. It would never, he would never experience the process of decay for a couple of reasons. One, because there was no leaven in him for him to, well, that's kind of symbolic there. But you know what I mean? In a symbolic level, there's no sin in him. He's not going to decay. Of course not. There's no rotting. There's no contamination. That's all symbolic. But on a practical level, we know that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. We know that he didn't stay in the grave. So he didn't rot. He didn't decay. Amen? Did you know that it took most people three days to die from crucifixion. That's why it was such a horrible execution. It would take them three days. You read all about it and you think about being up on the cross, nailed, immobile for three days, or, or even if it was a whole day, 24 hours, anything longer than about five seconds, right? It was miserable. The flies are all on you and the bugs and the gnats and, and lots can happen with bugs in just a few days. You guys know what I'm talking about? And it's happening up on that cross. And then you're also battling the, the, the weather, the heat, or whatever it's, else is going on. And then just the, the, the way that you're on that cross, you're trying to breathe, and you're, you're having just barely enough strength to take these breaths every now and then. And eventually, when you die, you die of suffocation. You just can't support that anymore, and you suffocate and you die. Most people, it took three days. But Jesus died in six hours. Why? He was just as healthy as any other Jewish man. Probably healthier. The guy was walking everywhere. Right? Why would Jesus die? It usually took two, three days for someone to die. Why did Jesus only die? Why did it only take him six hours? (laughs) He had an appointment to keep. Jesus had an appointment to keep. Isn't that right? Jesus was in the grave by the time the Feast of Unleavened Bread began. I can't go into all, it'd take forever to go into all the timing, but you can look it up. Jesus was in the grave by the time the Feast of Unleavened Bread began. Why? Because God always comes through with the appropriate thing at the appropriate time. (laughs) Isn't that good? You guys, this is just two feasts. I mean, we just covered two feasts. Kind of an overview, but we covered it. There's five more feasts. And we're going to talk about those for, uh, over the course of this year as they occur on the Hebrew calendar. It's always hard doing the first three, Passover, Unleavened Bread, and First Fruits, because they actually happen within three days of each other. We usually take three weeks, but we didn't feel like we were going to do that this year. We we're kind of covering all. If you were at the Passover Seder, you got a lot of education probably. God always comes through the appropriate thing at the appropriate time. There are four spring feasts. There's three fall feasts. The, the spring feast, Jesus has already fulfilled those. He died on Passover. He was in the grave on unleavened bread. He rose again on first fruits. Fifty days later, the Holy Spirit of God, Christ in us, the hope of glory, came down on the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. So the first four feast, Jesus literally fulfilled those or kept those appointments on the day with the appropriate thing on the appropriate day, the action, everything I was just saying earlier. You guys see that? So why would we expect anything less than for the fall feast, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles? Why would we believe anything less than Jesus will fulfill the fall feasts? And we're in a season of history that are in between Pentecost and the Feast of Trumpets. Some call that the church age. And we are awaiting the day the trumpet will sound. We'll talk about that in the fall. 
Isn't this good? Now, tomorrow, millions of Christians are going to be keeping God's third appointment. We call it Easter, but it's really called First Fruits, in case you didn't know that. We call it Easter, but it's really, according to God's appointment, it's really First Fruits. The, the first crop that was planted by the Hebrews was barley, okay? And it was planted in the winter, and then it would start ripening in the springtime, and the first sheaf or the first fruits of the harvest was cut up and then it was presented to the Lord in this really meticulous ceremony thing that they would do. They called it the wave offering. And they couldn't do anything else with any other part of the harvest until that wave offering, that first fruits was given. They couldn't do anything else. Even if it was there, look, we could cook it right now and make donuts. You know, they, could, they couldn't though. Not until, not until, not until two days after unleavened bread began. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits. They couldn't, even though it was there. Donuts, ready to be made. Time to make the donuts. You guys remember that? Anyway. They had to wait until the wave offering was given. And the Lord's acceptance of that wave offering, that first fruits offering, was like an earnest. It was like a pledge or a promise that he would produce a full harvest. In other words, there's a cycle to this offering. Now, I want you to pay real attention to this, Okay. They knew God would produce an abundant harvest, so they offered the first of what was to come. Let me say that again. The people knew God would produce an abundant harvest, so they offered the first of what was to come. And they offered the first of what was to come so that the rest of the harvest would be blessed and abundant. Which is it? It's both. (laughs) Let me say them one more time so you'll grab those. They knew God would produce a harvest, so they gave their first fruits. They offered their first fruits. The reason they offered it is so that, well, they offered the first of what was to come so that the rest of their harvest would be blessed. And the best way to take that right there and wrap wrap that around the tithe. Okay? I'm not saying that. So you guys will give money. We're doing fine financially. That's not the point. (laughs) Okay, I'm not one of those. But if you want to wrap that thought, that cycle, in a way that we can understand, we give because we know he's going to bless. And we give so that he will bless. Both at the same time. You guys with me? You tracking? So to put it simply, God knew what he wanted. He wanted the fruit of us being redeemed. He wanted to redeem what was lost in the garden. The sin that Adam and Eve did caused a separation between them and God. Not just them and God, all of mankind and God. It's called a spiritual death. And God wanted to redeem that. He wanted to exchange death for life. He wanted what was dead to come alive. You guys see that? That was his will. That's what he wanted. That's the fruit that he wanted to see. You guys remember um, um, we talked several weeks ago when we talked about the four soils. We talked about how God planted a seed in the four soils which represented our heart. But we talked about Jesus was the seed. That's what Jesus planted. I mean, God planted his son. Jesus went into the ground. In fact, Jesus said at that time, he said, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, unless it does that, it's only going to remain but a single seed. But if 
a seed will go into the ground and die, it will bear much fruit. It will multiply. He was talking about himself. And we could get really crazy and, and talk about how he's talking about us too. When we die to ourselves, it bears fruit in our lives. Why? Because it's walking according to the Spirit rather than according to the flesh. If it goes into the ground and dies, it will bear much fruit. Jesus believed, <laughs> Jesus believed the principle. God will produce an abundant harvest, so I will offer up my very life. You with me? Remember what we said. God always comes through with the appropriate thing at the appropriate time. So, on the day when Israel would have offered up that wave offering to the Lord so they could partake of the rest of the harvest, the first fruits, knowing that God would bring about an even greater harvest, on that day, that appointment, Jesus decides to raise from the grave. You guys see that? He became the first fruits of an even greater harvest that God wanted to see, which is us experiencing the resurrection life, life free from sin, life full of peace, life full of joy, life that is full of hope, but also to be raised to eternal life on the last day when Jesus comes back. That's what he wanted to see. Not just eternal life then, but resurrection life now, free from the stuff that used to hold us back and bound. Amen? That's what Jesus did on that day because he always comes through with the appropriate thing at the appropriate time. Now, the Corinthians really had a problem with this whole resurrection thing there for a while. And Paul had to write to him in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He, he's kind of dealing with, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. I can imagine him getting kind of irritated. He has. You know what I mean? Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, talking about Adam, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man, talking about Jesus. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. <laughs> Listen to what he says. But there is an order to this resurrection. I love that. I underlined it. There is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest, and then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. That's pretty cool. Did you hear what he said? You ever wondered what number you're going to be? <laughs> and now he says he's the first fruit. And he said, what did it say? There is an order to this resurrection. You ever thought about that? I wonder what number I'll be. <laughs> if Christ is the first, then there's an order to the resurrection when Jesus comes back. Then I've got to be a number something. 1,498. 1,499, right? What number are you going to be? Uh, it talks about that in 1 Thessalonians 2. He says somewhat of the same thing. He says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. In other words, he's coming back. With the voice of the archangel, angel, <laughs> the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And then look at what he says. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So those who are already dead are going to rise first. So we can't cut in line. But we do have a number, Right? I thought about this question, where will you be in the lineup? Where will you be in the lineup? But the, really the more relevant question is, will you be in the lineup? Does it really matter as much where I am, what number I am? Not near as much as am I in line? And the Apostle Paul tells us exactly how we need to get in line. 
In Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, he says, I consider all things worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus is my Lord. For, the sake, for his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer, I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Eternally, but also here, temporarily. I want to walk and live and operate in the resurrection life. That can only happen once you have put your faith. That's what he says. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. Faith in what? Faith in myself, faith in my money, faith in my government, faith in whatever it is that stands out on a day-to-day basis, as getting more attention than our Lord? No, faith in Yeshua, faith in Jesus. It's the only thing that will bring about the resurrection life because he is the first fruits of that. Amen? Amen. Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you done that? I'm not talking about lip service. I'm talking about life action. Have you done that? Have you surrendered to the power of his resurrection? All those things, considering everything worthless compared to the joy of knowing Christ. Have you done that? It's a valid question, I think, today. Don't you think? Because if you have, you're in line for eternal life. (laughs) But if you haven't, you're out of line. You're not in the line. That actually makes sense. You're out of line. You need to get in line. You need to step in line. And you can get in line today. All right, so there are enough clues. I'll I'll, I'll kind of end here. There are enough clues for us to solve that that mystery at the beginning. All right, hopefully you've been paying attention and your brain's been shelving clues. Oh, oh. Okay. There's enough clues. Why did dead people walk around the streets? Anybody want to take a guess based upon the clues that we said today? And remember The clue to lead all clues is that God always comes through with the appropriate thing at the appropriate time. Remember the cycle of the wave offering. They knew God would produce an harvest, so they offered the first of what what was to come, right? But then part of the cycle, too, is they offered the first of what was to come so that the rest of the harvest would be abundant. I'm just going to say it this way. I'm going to let it out of the bag. You want me to do that? Not only was... Jesus' resurrection, like a wave offering presented to the Lord as a first fruits of the harvest that would come, right? Could it be that the people that came alive and walked around the streets was Jesus' very own wave offering, his first fruits, the early crop of what would be an overwhelming harvest at the end of the age? Could it be, he's like, dude, I don't miss a feast. Father God, here's my offering. (laughs) People start walking around the street dead. Could it be? Well, we know one thing. God always comes through with the appropriate thing at the appropriate time. Isn't that right? 
Now, I want you to think about that in relation to what we said a second ago. Are you in line or are you not in line? Have you considered everything else worthless compared to the joy of knowing Christ? Have you put your faith in him? Because if you have, God will come through with the appropriate thing at the appropriate time. You will be with him in glory, it says in Scripture, for eternity. He will gather you into himself because he is coming back for those who have counted everything else as worthless compared to knowing him. So the appropriate thing for those who are in line is for Christ to come back and the appropriate thing for him to do is to take us with him. But remember, he always does the appropriate thing at the appropriate time. There's coming a day when he comes back and if you're not in that line, if your name is not written in that book, He can't help it. The appropriate thing for him to do on that day is to say, I never knew you. Depart from me. It doesn't mean that he's not good. It doesn't mean that he doesn't love you. It doesn't mean that he's not kind. It just means that he, he, because he is God, he will always do the appropriate thing at the appropriate time. You ever thought of it that way? You see it all over the feasts. Wait till we get into the other ones. I'll give you a little hint. Pentecost is the next one we'll come to. I believe Randy Hyde's going to share that morning, or that night, sorry. I don't know if he'll talk about this. He won't have to talk about this. We know what happened that day of Pentecost, the day the Holy Spirit came down. Peter finally got some umption because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Gave this speech that rocked the town. 3,000 people 3,000 people got saved that day. 3,000 people came to know Jesus the day that the Holy Spirit came down. The Feast of Weeks, Pentecost. 3,000 people got saved. The problem with that whole thing is that that's the only thing we know about Pentecost. What we don't know, most people in the church, is that that wasn't, we call it Pentecost because that's the day the Holy Spirit came down. No, they call it the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost because 50 days... After they came out of Egypt is when Moses came down the mountain with the law. That's what Penta means, 50. 50 days later he came down. Remember what he saw when he came down? What's going on down there? What's that shimmery bright heifer thing? The golden calf. You guys remember? You remember what happened? I can't believe you guys are doing this. He draws a line. Everybody who's with me and God, come on this side. Everybody else, whatever. People do cross the line, but some didn't. It says the earth opened up and swallowed those that didn't up. Do you know how many people were swallowed up that day? 3,000 people. The day the law came down, 3,000 people died. But the day the Spirit came down, 3,000 people were born again. New life. That makes sense because Scripture says that the law brings about death, but the Spirit brings life. Wow, the appropriate thing at the appropriate time. Let's stand. We're not going to make a big to-do about this. But if you do not know Jesus and the power of his resurrection, if you have not considered everything is lost compared to the insurpassable joy of knowing him, You haven't put your faith in all that he is. If 
you haven't done that, if, you, if you've done it verbally, but you've never done it in your life, and your life is not followed up, why not do that today? Get in line. Step in line. Enter into His resurrection. He's already done the work to get you there. And He became the first fruits. Gosh, dead people walked around the city of Jerusalem for your sake. Amen? As a guarantee that God would finish the work that He started in you. God's been calling on you since before you were even born. He created you in your mother's womb. He knows the plans and purposes that he has for you. And though you may feel like his plans for you are just a bunch of junk, harm, awfulness, it's not. The Bible says his plans for you are that you would prosper, not to be harmed, but that you would have a hope and a future. But that hope is only realized in Jesus Christ. And if you've never realized Christ, the hope of glory that will live in you, you've got to do it today. You've got to do it today. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Your word is so true. It proves itself over and over. And Christ Jesus and the blood of the Lamb is the center thread. It doesn't matter which testament we look at. It is the blood of a Lamb that breaks the bondage of slavery. Both the New Testament, Old Testament. There is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And Christ, we worship you today because of that. We pray that as we leave here today and we experience the rest of this resurrection weekend, we consider first fruits, that we will begin making adjustments in our lives that don't line up with us giving our first and best. Lord, that we would be people who are always looking to wave our offerings before you before we partake of anything else in every area of our life. Lord, we thank you. We love you and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.